Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Our theme for the day, as it were, is the future of democracy. We've got a lot to talk about today. And, of course, taking your calls. I want to start out in just a moment with today's op-ed titled, Can't You See That the Overthrow of the Entire Planet's Liberal Order is Their Goal? Yep, that's what they're up to. The Republican Party does have a vision for America and beyond, as does the media aligned with them. And if you want to see that vision, you have to look no farther than Hungary. I'll get to that. Both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders weighing in on that. Also, I want to ask the question, is Trump just a warm-up act for something far worse? And this is, I think, probably the most serious question that we are facing. We'll get to that in about 15 minutes. Also is a big business and their embrace of neo-fascism on the Republican side. Has that slowed down? A whole bunch of companies have said, no, we won't fund Republicans anymore who try to overthrow the government. Well, I'll give you the details. And we've got a crazy alert. Melania Trump is selling her stuff on the internet. How much money does she need, or is this just the latest Trump family way of grifting off having been in the White House? So that's all the stuff that's coming up. Let me start with today's op-ed from HartmanReport.com. It's titled, Can't You See That the Overthrow of the Entire Planet's Liberal Order is Their Goal? This is the Republican vision for America. Now, I get it. In 2020, when Donald Trump was running for re-election, the Republican Party literally chose not to have a party platform. There are no principles on which we are running other than our love for dear leader, is essentially what they said. I mean, they actually put up something that they called the platform, and it didn't say anything. I, there's a link to it in my article, if you're, if you're curious. But basically, they altogether abandoned the idea of having governing principles. This is an election year. And we are now seeing more clearly exactly what the Republican Party's principles are and how they tie into Donald Trump. Um, but again, they're not coming out and saying what they're for. No policy positions. I mean, you know, they'll tell you they're against teaching American history in our schools. 
that they're against accepting uh, you know, LGBTQ people, uh, you know, right across the board, that they are against voting rights for minorities, but they're still refusing to say what they're for, other than, you know, that January 6th was just a bunch of tourists and, and freedom. But whether they're saying it out loud or not, the Republican Party actually does have a vision for America and the world. And Donald Trump laid it out. Uh, this is uh, the Washington Post called this an unusual endorsement. Donald Trump said, Victor Orban of Hungary truly loves his country and wants safety for his people. He is a strong leader and respected by all. He has my complete support and endorsement for re-election as prime minister. So who is Victor Orban? Well, Bernie Sanders provided a translation to Trump's tweet. He himself tweeted, quote, Trump wants to do here what Orban has done in Hungary. Weaken democratic institutions, curb press freedom, and rewrite election laws to entrench his own party's power. The threat to our democracy, Bernie Sanders wrote, could not be clearer, and we must act boldly to protect it. So what is Orban all about that Trump is so excited about and that the Republican Party is so excited about? What is Orban so, you know, all about that, that is so excited Tucker Carlson and Fox News that they took a whole camera crew over to Hungary and did their show live from Budapest with Tucker Carlson all but offering Orban a lap dance on the air. Well, what he has done is he's embraced this strongman style of grievance oligarchy it's, uh, uh, that is being embraced by neo-fascists across the country. And, I mean, this is, this is the whole thing. Steve Bannon once said that Orban was Trump before Trump. NBC News said, quote, from targeting migrants to inflaming an ethno-nationalist base to attacking the press to whipping up nativist conspiracies, ushering in unprecedented corruption and tearing down basic democratic protections, Trumpism is increasingly indistinguishable from Orbanism. And in my op-ed, I tell the story about how back in 1989, my, my best friend Jerry Schneiderman and I were in, in Budapest. And uh, this was the, the summer that Viktor Orban made his appearance on the, on the political stage. He was 26 years old that year. And he gave a, this was, a, the Soviet Union still controlled Hungary. Uh, this was, you know, 89, you had Glasnost going on and Gorbachev was in charge and he was kind of saying, well, we need to kind of loosen things up. And, and Orban just came out and said, no, we want independence. And they got it. They got it in 1999. They, uh, this was in March of 1990. Hungary became an independent country in 1999. They joined NATO in 2004. Hungary became a member of the European Union. And, you know, during this 20-year period from 1990 to 2010, basically, Hungary was a functioning democracy. But today, today Hungary is a corrupt neo-fascist oligarchy. And this is what Orban did. If, number one, he himself has become an oligarch. He's made himself insanely rich. And he has turned his country from a functioning European democracy into a single-party state. That is what Trump and the Republican Party want to do here in the United States. Orban took his Fidesz party, which was once kind of like the Republican Party. It was just a conventional, mainstream, conservative political party and said that now their theme is restoring Christian purity and making Hungary great again. Yes, that was his slogan. His rallies draw thousands of people, tens of thousands of people. 
Orban campaigned on building a wall against across the entirety of Hungary's southern border, and he kept that promise. It's there. It's heavily militarized now. He altered Hungary's constitution to create at a federal level what you and I would call gerrymandering and voter suppression so that basically he'll never, you know, which is what Texas and Georgia are doing right now, uh, so that basically he'll never lose an election. He packed the courts, just like Trump and Mitch McConnell did, particularly Hungary's equivalent of the Supreme Court, so thoroughly that when people try to challenge him legally, they lose. They just consistently lose. Last year, Hungary passed laws requiring conservative sex education in schools. In other words, teaching that gay is bad. And they passed a law banning the portrayal of gay people on television. In public campaigns, they conflate homosexuality with pedophilia. Their latest anti-gay law passed parliament. This was a law that said that your gender identity at birth is your gender identity throughout the rest of your life, period, full stop. That passed the Hungarian parliament by 157 to 1. Trump and the GOP want to do the same thing here. Orban has been railing against multiculturalism and racial tolerance. Uh, they, they actually changed their grade school textbooks to say that, quote, refugees entering the country are a threat because it can be problematic for different cultures to coexist. He locked up refugee children in cages, just like Donald Trump did. You know, five years before the Unite the Right march, where Trump said, oh, yeah, there's some very good people there. When, you know, they murdered Heather Heyer and were marching around with tiki torches saying, you will not replace us, Jews will not replace us. Five years before that, in Hungary, Orban's group did a torchlight parade, as it were, to the homes of the Roma, what used to be called gypsies. Now it's kind of a slur. Well, it is a slur. But they marched to their homes chanting, we will set your homes on fire. Zolt Baer, who was one of the founders of Orban's party, called the Roma animals, unfit to live among people. And like Trump, Orban refused to condemn that violence. He's handed government contracts to his good buddies. So, you know, this whole class of pro-Orban businessmen, and yes, they're all men, have now seized almost complete control of Hungary's economy. Trump and the GOP want to finish the job of monopoly and oligarchy here in the United States and, frankly, around the world. Virtually all of Hungary's press are now in the hands of oligarchs and corporations loyal to, to Orban. They, they sing his praises every day. It's like every network, every station in Hungary is like Fox News here. Orban began dismantling the Hungarian Sciences Academy saying and just firing scientists who acknowledge climate change saying that uh, climate change is, quote, left-wing trickery made up by Barack Obama, end quote. That's Viktor Orban's position. I mean, this is, Orban has completely reinvented Christianity in Hungary, embracing this hard-right movement within the Catholic Church and Protestant evangelicals, just like Trump and the GOP have done here. It's, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, you know, the women in Hungary have been marginalized, According to Orban, quote, Hungarian politics is built on continual character assassination, which creates the kind of brutal situations that women cannot endure. His political party has 103 members of parliament, and 11 are women. This is the, uh, the, the so-called Fidesz party and their, and their coalition party uh, par partners, the uh, Christian Democrats. 
I mean, this is this is and, and here in the United States, same deal. I mean, look at how few women are in the Republican Party and Trump and the men in the GOP just love attacking Nancy Pelosi and AOC and any other woman that they view as strong. They view these women as threats here in the United States. Orban has put into place his own senior officials, his own corrupt versions of Bill Barr and Mike Pompeo. And in fact, he's offering asylum to corrupt oligarchs from other countries, which raises the question, is Donald Trump, are Donald Trump and his corrupt family, the, the Trump crime family, are they going to move to Hungary if they get seriously prosecuted? I wouldn't write it off. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Now you've got the Republican Party at the head of the Republican Party, Donald Trump, officially endorsing Orban. That's everything you need to know about where the GOP wants to take America. I'm not the only person out here who is talking like this. And there's a smaller number of people talking about Viktor Orban. Obviously, Bernie Sanders got really cranked about it. And that this is the model that the Republican Party wants for the United States and that Republican media, conservative media, wants for the world. I mean, CPAC is now doing their big annual convention or, or a version of it, one of their conventions in Budapest this year. And they're going to Hungary. This is, this is like a worldwide authoritarian movement. Hitler had his, uh, his Third Reich. He claimed it was going to be a thousand years of peace with him in charge worldwide. Just put me in charge and I'll bring peace to the world, he said. And they tried to do it. They took over all of, almost all of Europe. So the question now, you know, taking this to the next step, and this, this is uh, out of uh, a Canadian scholar. His name is Thomas Homer Dixon. And he's writing in the Canadian newspaper, The Globe and Mail, which is sort of the Canadian New York Times. He is uh, the director of the Cascade Institute at Royal Roads University. He said, Republicans in the United States, quote, armed to the teeth are flashing with warning signals. By 2025, this Canadian scholar wrote, American democracy could collapse, causing extreme domestic political instability, including widespread civil violence. By 2030, if not sooner, the country could be governed by a right-wing dictatorship. And he says that, you know, the, the right-wing media in the United States and Donald Trump are as much symptoms of political dysfunction in the United States as they are causes. He goes on to say that uh, shifts have happened in the United States that are causing this. And I've ranted about this at length. He says these include stagnating middle class incomes, chronic economic insecurity, and rising inequality. As the, as the country's economy has transitioned from muscle power, from heavy industry, into technology and finance. And in other words, you know, Reaganism gutted the American middle class and the American middle class is pissed off and they're not sure who to blame. And then you get these, you know, Trump and these demagogues coming along saying, you know, blame democracy, blame, uh, the, you know, the, the, the liberal order, as it were. And then he talks about how willingness to publicly endorse the big lies become a litmus test for the Republican Party. And this, he says, puts it, uh, you know, put it, puts us in just a, a genuine state of crisis. I am in complete agreement.
Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, just talking about, you know, is Trump the warm-up act? I just want to finish this and then I'll pick up your phone calls here in just a moment. This is, again, this is this Canadian scholar asking well, suggesting that Trump is just a warm-up act. And, you know, that, that Trump, in, the, in a way, he's kind of like the... He's the one who initiates the process and has initiated the process over the last five years. But he's probably not the one who's going to carry it to completion. That'll probably be somebody much more sophisticated than Donald Trump. But this fellow goes on... Let me give you his name, this uh, Canadian professor. His name is Thomas Homer Dixon, and uh, he's the executive director of the Cascade Institute at the Royal Roads University. And this was a piece that he published in the Globe and Mail, the Canadian newspaper. He points out that endorsing the big lie, you know, the, the argument that Republicans make that uh, Donald Trump actually won the election, that he lost by 7 million votes, he said this isn't just an ideological move to promote Republican solidarity against Democrats. It puts its followers one step away from the psychological dynamic of extreme dehumanization. In other words, the otherization of people. Oh, it's a them. Right. Of the extreme dehumanization that has led to some of the worst violence in human history. And it has refashioned into a moral crusade against evil. Republican efforts to gerrymander congressional districts into pretzel-like shapes to restrict voting rights and to take control of state-level electoral apparatuses. Um, he goes on to note that this past November, more than 150 professors of politics, governments, political economy, and international relations appealed to Congress to pass the Freedom to Vote Act, which would protect the integrity of the U.S. elections. Chuck Schumer now says, yeah, give me a couple weeks. 
And uh, apparently Joe Manchin said, well, we still like to see some Republican. Yeah, he's waffling, even though he's one of the co-sponsors of the bill, which is bizarre. But anyway, back to this piece. This is a moment of great peril and risk. Time is ticking away. Midnight is approaching. Homer Dixon consulted uh, numerous experts about what would happen if Trump came to power in 2024 or someone like him. And he said, and he writes, this was, again, in the Globe and Mail, he he writes, they cited particular countries and political regimes to illustrate where he might take the U.S. Viktor Orban's Hungary with its coercive legal apparatus of illiberal democracy. Bingo. Right? So this Canadian professor is saying that Trump and the GOP are following Hungary and Orban's lead. He goes on to write about all these political scientists and experts that he consulted for this report that he published. He said, all agree that under a second Trump administration, liberalism will be marginalized and right-wing Christian groups super empowered while violence by vigilante paramilitary groups will rise sharply. He goes on to say, Mr. Trump may just be a warm-up act, someone ideal to bring about the first stage, but not the second. He notes that this process, by the way, that Trump is engaging in is producing political and social shambles. He said it will thin the ranks of the movement's opponents within the state and then set the stage for a more managerially competent ruler after Mr. Trump to bring order to the chaos he's created. Which, by the way, is what Steve Bannon is openly telling his audiences. He says the GOP shock troops, this this uh, from uh, a piece over at, uh, uh, da, 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 this is uh, commondreams.org. In October, Steve Bannon openly told audiences the GOP shock troops should be deployed inside the federal government as soon as the next Republican president takes office in order to, quote, reconfigure the government from within. So Homer Dixon, this Canadian scholar, he's asking He's speaking to Canadians, right? He's publishing in the Globe and Mail, the, the Toronto newspaper. And he's saying, well, how do we respond? How does Canada respond as a country if America turns fascist? And he is calling for his country to, quote, convene a standing nonpartisan parliamentary committee to prepare for the possibility of a democratic collapse in the South, an outcome that could have a major implication for Canada. He, he writes, we need to start by fully recognizing the magnitude of the danger. If Mr. Trump is reelected, even under the most optimistic scenarios, the economic and political risks to our country, to Canada, will be innumerable. How do we stop this? Well, frankly, I think the, the main thing to do is to pass the, hunger, you know, the Freedom to Vote Act. Anyhow, picking up your phone calls. Jack in Iowa City, it says here you just got back from Hungary. Really? Yes. Tell me about it. Yes, I just got back from Hungary. Visiting a relative that's been working there. Uh-huh. And so I had an opportunity to go. I've never really traveled much. You know, first time back to Europe. Yeah. So we had a, a very pleasant time. Oh, Budapest is a beautiful and city. I found the city very safe. Mm-hmm safer than probably my own neighborhoods here, you know, in the cities anyway. I mean, I walked, took the public transportation, noticed the people, you know, it just seemed, it was a very pleasant time. And a very beautiful city and being revitalized, so I see that 
Yeah, if you were not <laughs> Jewish or a minority in Germany between 1933 and 19, probably 38, uh, you know, Germany appeared the same way. In fact, that was that, that fa famous quote from Milton Mayer, from that professor that he interviewed in the 1950s, who said, you know, you look around and the shops are open and people seem happy and everything seems normal. You don't realize that underneath the whole country has changed. Yes, and that's, you know, it's, it's some of my, my view on it. I saw a very homogenous society. They were all white. They looked just like us. I come from an area, there's a lot of Czech people or whatever, so I mean, it's, it just looked like I was kind of at home, mm -hmm. a lot of people spoke English, but again, I saw very few people of color, and there was a lot of tourists in the area at that time, also with the Christmas markets. Yeah. So it's just, I can see why the Republicans and the party are, are trying to push this, it looks like they're doing well, they're the people, I didn't see any very few homeless uh, yeah, the poverty in, in, yeah. in Hungary, and particularly in Budapest, uh, I'm guessing you were on the uh, Buddha side of the river uh, pretty much exclusively? No, I was on the Pest side. You were on the Pest side, too? Okay, because, you know, the poverty there is, is fairly narrowly circumscribed, or at least it was when I was there. That was 20 years ago, but, yeah. uh, you know, they, they had, uh, particularly the Roma, uh, they had largely isolated them. Well, Jack, thanks for the report. I've done some, some reading on... Uh, in, into their history, and I can see, I can see some parallels, you know, their own prejudices. And, oh, this used to be the headquarters of the Austro-Hungarian Austro Empire. You know, <laughs> you know. Yes. I mean, they... so, but it was still a very interesting, a very pleasant. I would recommend anybody to go visit there. Yeah. Again, I do not know of the, the locals' political views or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that, so, and, and that's, that's the key to the whole thing. I mean, this is, like I said, this is, this is so much like Milton Mayer saying, you know, or Milton Mayer's uh, uh, you know, one of the people he interviews saying, you know, everything looks fine, but underneath it's, yeah, well, I mean, he, Orban just last week had this guy arrested for writing on Facebook that he thought Orban was a dictator. And, you know, when the guy got out of jail, he said, okay, Orban has succeeded. He shut me up. I'm not going to talk anymore. Yeah. And, you know, that's... I'm, really, I'm not trying to promote, you know, whatever their lifestyle. It seems, it, well, I, I, purpose, I, it seems to be working for them. I, and I can see why they will have... The CPAC will go over there and they will visit because they will they will show that, showcase that. And, oh, and, sure. And well, and that's true. And that's American true of pretty much all the rest of Europe. I mean, Europe is, is prosperous and... and uh, but. Yeah, yeah, Jack, Jack, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Lynn in Detroit. Hey, Lynn, what's on your mind today? Yes, hi, Tom. Happy New Year still. Thank you. Back at you. Oh, thanks. Tom, I was calling. Uh, first of all, I did read that article. I had read it before you said it, and it is very good. But I was calling about the taking of American democracy. Mm -hmm. And what I see going on is the Democrats and the media they have allowed this to be labeled as a black issue. You're talking about the voter suppression and the and and reconfiguring uh, election boards so that Republicans can throw out, throw out results they don't like. I, right. I agree, and it's not it's not exclusively a black issue. I mean, it, it, minorities are an explicit target in many cases, but there are a lot of white communities that vote Democratic that they're that they're intending to suppress the vote of just as aggressively. Absolutely. And um, once you take the vote away, I mean, first of all, votes are cumulative. So you need all the votes to win. Yep. So even if you're white, if you need my vote, that means you lost 
yep. election also. And once American democracy is gone, once it fails, it's gone for everyone. So it's not a black issue, but it's labeled as that. And because it has been labeled as that, and the Democrats aren't giving any pushback. And, and I've called their offices. I've called uh, my senators. I've called senators that weren't mine and, and um, Congress people. And I tell them, you have to come out because you've allowed it to be labeled as a black issue. Now you have to um, proactively say, this is not a black issue. This is an issue that affects all of us. Yeah. And so they have to, and I don't know what it will take to get them to say that, but like I said, I've, I've, I've called and written and, and everything. And I think more people need to do that and say, you know, don't let this look like a black issue or a civil rights issue or anything like that, because what happens is um, a white Democrats, a lot of white people, they say, well, this is not our issue. Right. So they don't get involved. They don't think it's important. And so that's why I think they need to be praying until they do that. Um, the, the, the white Democratic voter, the average one, not, of course, your, you and your listeners, but the average one, they will not know or care and they will allow democracy to fail. Right. Thinking that it's just a racial issue and it doesn't affect them. I get it. Right. I, 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 you know, uh, I, I get it. And that's a, a profound insight. And, uh, I mean, you know, Martin Luther King used to talk about this, you know, about bringing people together and about, you know, the, the importance of democracy and, and labor movements and things like that. And, and that it wasn't just, uh, I don't, I don't want to try to uh, <laughs> re-articulate King, but uh, spot on. Lynn, thank you. That, that was a very important point. Very important point. Uh, Paul in Lucerne, California. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. No, I don't think Trump will get to run for president again. I think he's going to be in jail. But the next Republican is just sitting and waiting. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is just a practice. Josh Hawley, Rick Scott, Ron DeSantis, you know, all of them would do the same stuff Trump will do. But worse. I think you're right. They're more, they're, they're polished a little bit more. Yep. And if we don't get the Freedom to Vote Act passed... Our democracy will be hanging by a thread worse than it is already. Yeah, I mean, well, it is it is hanging by a thread right now, but I'm, I am completely with you, Paul. It would be like somebody just cut half that thread. I'm sorry, say that again? It would be like somebody just cut half the thread. Yeah. You know, they just started cutting on it. Yeah. Because, I mean, we're going to start, the Democrats here in California, we're going to start, I believe, this weekend, phone banking again. Mm -hmm. We're going to be pushing really hard for the Freedom to Vote Act. Good. And everybody, you, you got to get involved. Yep. And the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, you know, the, the deals with, with uh, some of the, frankly, I think more targeted issues. Paul, thank you. Thank you very much for the call. Spot on. I salute your perspective. I agree with you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We'll be back with more of your calls in just a moment. It's the Tom Hartman Program, the place where despair is not an option. Mike in Lomita, California. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I was just uh, considering your question from yesterday about how we should mark January 6th 
and what it should be called. And the fact is, we already have a holiday that's appropriate for the occasion. That is Constitution Day or Law Day. It was uh, some decades ago, it was positioned on May Day, sort of in your face to the communists. Mm -hmm. But I think it uh, would be a very appropriate thing to move it to January 6th. That's the day that Congress set for the counting of electoral ballots. Right. So it's a logical time in that sense. Also, of course, uh, it represents the failure of the first attempt at a violent overthrow of the U.S. Constitution in a non-separatist way. Those are all... Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. In any event, uh, you know, everything in American constitutional history has an antecedent in British constitutional history, though Americans don't like to think in those terms, but it's true. And in uh, Britain, every November 5, they have fireworks and bonfires and all that to celebrate the failure of an attempt to overthrow the British Constitution by a violent act. Yeah. Guy Fawkes and the gunpowder plot. Yeah. So I think Donald Trump should be uh, commemorated as uh, Dumb John uh, because I think his middle name is the, the one by which we should remember him, giving us double connotations. And uh, we should be celebrating the fact that his attempt to assassinate the vice president and the Speaker of the House and overturn the U.S. Constitution failed. Right. Well, I'm, I, Mike, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I, I've heard of Constitution Day. <laughs> I've seen it on calendars, <laughs> Law Day. Um, but I don't know, that, frankly, that much about either or if they're the same thing. These are not federally recognized holidays, are they? I mean, you don't get, your day, you don't get the day off for Constitution Day. It's just one of those days that we're supposed to go, oh, yeah, isn't that cool? Not a federal holiday, but I expect there has been at least a resolution of the Congress signed by a president, you know, just making right. it a special day. Right, but it's sort of like being should, in post uh, offices. Yeah, I, I think we should be uh, making it a, a celebration of the, so far, the survival of the Constitution. I agree. Do you know if the Constitution Day that we currently have is tied to any particular event in the history of the United States? Is it like the day the Constitution was ratified or something like that? Well, I think it's because it was already the uh, Communist International's uh, big oh, celebration for workers right. around the yeah, around the world. Yeah. So this was back when uh, the Cold War was at full tilt, and you know, take that, commies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, May first was the International Workers' Day, which which uh, the communists appropriated, and and uh, or the Soviets, we should say, I think, appropriated. I'm not sure I'd call them true communists, but. In any case, yeah, excellent point, Mike. That, that I don't know where to begin with. I guess it would have to take a member of Congress to do it. It would. Yeah. yeah. Mike, thanks a lot. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems 
because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Sean in Brooklyn, New York. It says you disagree with me, Sean. So you go to the front of the line. What's on your mind? Hey, yes, Tom. I was sitting here listening to the opinion of the, the Canadian that issued the, the terror warning about the fascism of the Trump Trumpsters. But if you look at what's going on in Canada right now and how they're handling this pandemic, that government is operating more like a fascist country than any democracy here in America, even with the restrictions that's occurring. With what does fascism COVID. have to do with public health measures? I mean, George Washington vaccinated his troops. Um, the Supreme Court in 1905 ruled that it is perfectly within the Constitution and freedom for government to require vaccinations. This was a case out of Massachusetts, uh, um, Jacobson v. Massachusetts, as I recall in which you know somebody said wait a minute i don't i shouldn't have to get vaccinated you're infringing on my liberty and the supreme court said no we're not uh, uh, how can you say that canada being a little more rigorous than the united states in requiring vaccinations and masks is fascist the, i don't get the connection well i believe that you know we as americans we should have the choice to over our body the same way the population fights for Sean, if you never exhaled, I would agree with you. If you never, ever exhaled. But every every time you exhale, if you are infected with a virus, you are spreading it to people around you. You know, it's the the old saying, you know, your right to swing your fist ends at at my nose, right? And your right to, to be infected with a virus ends at the moment you begin spreading it to other people. And if you're not wearing a mask or if you're not vaccinated, you are risking spreading a disease, a deadly disease to people around you. Well, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a mask. All I'm, all I'm emphasizing is the fact that a choice should be made. And, and with the time that has gone by, we see now that individuals who are vaccinated are capable of contracting and spreading the virus as well. Yeah, they are. And they and when they if they test positive or they become symptomatic, they should immediately quarantine themselves and, and wear a mask. Uh, absolutely. Right. But, and, but the odds as, that they're going to die are much less, dramatically less. But, but so. as Americans, we should have the freedom of choice, freedom to choose to infect other people. You consider that well, a freedom? Well, no, I'm just saying that we have the That's bizarre, choice Sean. To, to take the necessary steps, just like how you indicated we should be able to wear masks 
and also uh, quarantine. Now this is this is why we don't allow smoking in buildings. I mean, you know, it's like you don't have the right to blow cancer-causing chemicals in my face. You don't have the right to to blow pathogenic viruses in my face, Sean. This is not. But yet, cig- but yet cigarettes are not banned for health reasons. They absolutely are. You can, they even took out, you can't even find cigarette vending machines anymore because they don't want children to have access to them. We tightly regulate tobacco and we regulate the behavior of using tobacco. You can't smoke in public places, you can't, indoors anyway, because it can poison other people. And I don't and see my, the difference. My, you, you just made my point. You have a choice. You can smoke outdoors. You can't smoke indoors, but you right. can and smoke if you, and if you have and, I'm, I'm, and if you have COVID and you want to go stand outside all by yourself and breathe, no problem. But you get around other people, you've got a responsibility. And I just, you know, I'm not buying it that it's fascism to say that we're going to, as a society, enforce that responsibility to protect all the rest of us. Sean, thank you for the call. Um, we, We will continue. And is the big fascism slide continuing with regard to corporate America? We'll get into all that in just a minute. You're listening to Tom Hartman. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. And uh, the big fascism slide of business is continuing at a breakneck speed. Judd Legum today in his uh, popular.info newsletter is talking about this. There are a few corporations who have said that they are going to stop. Actually, dozens of corporations back after January 6th said that they were no longer going to contribute money to the uh, so-called sedition caucus the 147 Republican members of Congress, I believe it's 100 in the House and, and 140 in the House and Senate, seven in the Senate, who voted to overturn the 2020 election. And uh, he says, so far, so dozens of major companies cut off corporate PAC donations to Republican objectors in 2021, but at this point, most are keeping their options open for 2022. Judd considered, you know, at, at popular.info, he says, this is a worrisome sign for the future of democracy. Uh, Cigna, for example, you know, the health care, the health insurance uh, giant, uh, told the New York Times that they're, do- they're giving money to Republicans who are in favor of overthrowing our republic uh, didn't violate its pledge to elected officials who hindered a peaceful transition of power because congressional votes are, by definition, part of the peaceful transition of power. Right. PG&E has donated money to nine Republican objectors. They had said they wouldn't. And also to the NRSC and the NRCC. Um, T-Mobile has donated to uh, at least one of the Republican objectors, Congressman Hal Rogers of Kentucky, and 30000 bucks to the NRSC. AT&T, which had pledged to suspend it. Uh, in February, donated money to the House Conservatives Fund. The chair of that fund is Jim Banks, one of the, one of the part of the Sedition Caucus. The House Conservatives Fund also, Judd Legum notes, serves as the primary fundraising vehicle for the Republican Study Committee, the RSC. The overwhelming majority of the RSC members voted to overturn the election results on January 6th, and they have pushed false claims that the 2020 election was filled with fraud. And then, of course, also AT&T has donated money to both the NRCC and the NRSC. So now we've got a couple of watchdog groups 
Uh, Accountable.us uh, is uh, the, the first. They have come out with a new report. It's titled In Bad Company. They're focusing on 20 Fortune 500 companies and 10 industry, industry groups that have contributed over $3.3 million to the eight senators and 139. Oh, I had my numbers wrong. It's uh, eight, eight senators and 139 representatives who collectively uh, you know, are the Sedition Caucus. And in this account, in this Accountable.us uh, report, uh, they're profiling Chevron, uh, ExxonMobil, Merck, Pfizer, FedEx, UPS, Boeing, General Dynamics, L3 Harris Technologies, Lockheed Martin, Northrop, Northrop Grumman, and Raytheon Technologies. And then the Center for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, Crew, also released a report. They noted, and I'm quoting from their report, since the insurrection, 717 corporations and, and, and industry groups have donated over $18 million to 143 of the 147 members of Congress who objected to the results of the 2020 election, as well as the National Republican Senatorial Committee and the National Republican Congressional Committee. This is what Cruz said. These companies, quote, have contributed a total of $4,785,000 to insurrectionist political groups, including three, uh, $2,381,250 directly to lawmakers' campaigns and political action committees. Boeing, Coke Industries, American Crystal Sugar, General Dynamics, and Valero Energy were the top corporate donors to these people. PACs affiliated with these groups have contributed $7.6 million to insurrectionist political groups, including 5.2 directly to campaigns and leadership PACs. So they, they go through these examples. This is, this is grim stuff. Remember yesterday I told you that fascism is the merger of corporate and state interests? Bingo. We'll be right back. Is it time to start calling it fascism? I think so. Crazy alert. Melania Trump. You'll recall the Trump charity. They had this charity where they said, you know, give money to us and we'll give it to good causes. And then, you know, Donald Trump used it to buy paintings of himself and, and pay for his living expenses and all kinds of stuff like that. Well, Melania is up to something weird. She just offered a non-fungible token, an NFP. This is a digital art, basically, last week. And this week she's selling the hat that she wore on the official state visit with President Macron in France. And she's autographed the hat, and the price starts at a quarter million dollars. And they're saying that a, quote, portion of the funds will go to her Be Best campaign to fight bullying, which raises a bunch of questions. Number one, how much of a portion? 10 cents, 50 cents, $3? And of that portion, how much is Be Best paying Melania? And beyond that, why does she need money? What's going on here? I mean, if you want to support a charity, just give the hat to the charity and let the charity run the auction. I guess it's, you know, once a grifter, always a grifter. Anyhow, I wanted to share that. I thought that was fascinating. James in Cosa Mesa, California. Hey, James, what's up? Hey, Tom, longtime listener, first-time caller. Thank you. I really appreciate what you do for everyone out here. But I just wanted to make a couple comments. One about your comment about fascism. And this is absolutely fascism. Trump is the definition of a demagogue. If anybody wants to look it up, it's pretty scary. Yeah, literally. Um, and the second 
And the second thing I wanted to say about the gentleman that disagreed with you earlier about Canada, you know, what about my right? What about my right to choose? What about my right to health and safety? What about my right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? This is the problem that you see with, uh, who's the football quarterback for the Green Bay Packers who just, Aaron Rodgers, yeah, who just came out and said, you know, Ayn Rand is the answer to all problems, right? And Ayn Rand, of course, uh, her theory was, I mean, she was a sociopath. Her theory was that if everybody acts with maximum selfishness, then society benefits somehow. And this has been embraced by, you know, a bunch of right-wing billionaires. And it, it's become an ideology in the United States. It's at the core of the Republican Party. Paul Ryan, when he was Speaker of the House of Representatives, required his staff to read Atlas Shrugged, you know, Ayn Rand's novel, and or her main novel. And uh, you know, this is this is a belief system that spawned what we call neoliberalism. It 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 was foundational to Milton Friedman's thinking when when in 1947 he went to the, the to Mont Pelerin in Switzerland and founded, co-founded the Mont Pelerin Society along with Hayek and Mises. And, and the, the whole idea was if everybody does what will maximally benefit them, to hell with everybody else, then somehow magically that benefits society. And it's, it's a psychopathic rationalization for selfishness. That's all it is. Uh, it, 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 there, wow. There's a famous quote, I think it was from John Maynard Keynes, that the the uh, the eternal effort of conservatism. I know I'm mischaracterizing, or I'm not quoting verbatim. This is I'm paraphrasing, but the eternal uh, effort of conservatism is to put a, a good moral face on selfishness. You know, is to is to come up with new rationalizations for selfishness, and that's 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 what they do. That's what they're all about. So it shouldn't surprise us, although it is it is kind of horrifying. James, I got I got to run, but thank you for the call. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Media watchdogs are out in force pleading, essentially, with the American media not to carry Donald Trump's lies. Angelo Caruso, uh, you know, the guy who runs Media Matters for America, MediaMatters.org, which is just a, a really vital website these days, is talking about this, among others. And he notes that Trump lies every time he opens his mouth, basically. But I, th I think it goes beyond this. Uh, New York University journalist and professor Jay Rosen publishes a blog called Press Think, which is uh, you know, widely read among uh, people in the media. And uh, in a Sunday tweet, uh, he reached out to people in the media and said, uh, newsworthiness, which is the rubric, this is the term that the media justifies putting Donald Trump on the air with, right? Uh, you know, even though we, heard, we all heard 
uh, you know, the president of ABC News back uh, in, what is it, 2015, 2016, say, you know, Donald Trump may be terrible for America, but, uh, you know, it's, it's great for, NBC, for ABC. So, you know, keep at it, Donald Trump, right? Um, so anyhow, he's, this is uh, Rosen. He says, newsworthiness is an incoherent grab bag of factors that does not take into account the damage that a demagogue can do to the public sphere or the truth value of an event. And this particular speaker, that would be Donald Trump, can be good at producing lurid spectacle. Which takes us back to my old rant that, you know, uh, the state of our news today is the consequence of three things. The reason why we don't even have, you know, good solid reporting and the reason why Donald Trump may well get away with promoting far more obscene and aggressive lies. Number one, of course, you know, Ronald Reagan ending the Fairness Doctrine in 1987. Number two, Bill Clinton signing the Telecommunications Act of 1996 that allowed radio and television and, and newspapers to uh, form into giant monopolies rather than having local control and to cross-own each other, uh, kind of paving the way for uh, Sinclair and Fox and and what used to be called Cumulus and what used to be called uh, Clear Channel, uh, all with lots and lots and lots of right-wing programming. And number three, the, uh, the writer's strike. And I think this was in 98, I, I may be wrong on the year, but uh, sometime in the late 90s, it was, as I recall, during the Clinton presidency, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I genuinely don't remember the year, but um, just the era, but uh, the writers in, in, in Hollywood went on strike. And the television company, the television production companies and the television networks still needed stuff to put on the air. And so they started programming what they called reality shows because the reality shows didn't need a writer. And the directors weren't on strike. The producers weren't on strike. The talent wasn't on strike. It was just the writers. So, hey, you know, how can we do television without writers? Be easy. Do a reality show. And so suddenly television started this thing of, hey, let's follow average people around. And the, you had the dating reality shows, and you had the having, having fights reality shows, and kind of Jerry Springer kind of stuff morphed into uh, mainstream and, and primetime television during that period. And what those reality shows did is they set a, a whole brand new standard for television journalism, which didn't exist before. Prior, prior to the writer's strike, when you watch the news on TV at night, you know, occasionally the news anchor who was saying, okay, there's, you know, 17 stories, big stories today, and in our 30 minutes, we're going to cover them one at a day, and they just, you know, two minutes per story, and they just go right through them all. And occasionally they would hand it off to some, you know, and, and our correspondent in, in uh, uh, Baghdad has this to say, Ralph, what's going on in Baghdad? And Ralph would say, well, here's what's happening, and then they come back. But that was it. But now we've got reality television, which is where the host will, you know, look into the camera and say, okay, you know, here's, here's what's going on. And now let's have a panel of three people on who are going to tell us what they think about this. That's reality TV. It doesn't require b writers. It doesn't, you know, if, uh, all the producer has to do is get the talent, you know, is to get, the, get the, the people on the air. It's super simple to produce. And it, in my opinion, it contributes to the dumbing down of America. And this is what 
um, you know, Rosen is talking about is, you know, media, the media seems to be going for easy, cheap, high stickiness, high, high uh, you know, uh, sensationalism value. But they don't care about the news content. They don't care about the context. They don't care about the impact that this has on democracy. When Les Moonves was saying, hey, yeah, Donald Trump, you know, keep going. Um, he came right out and said, this is terrible for America, as I said a moment ago. He came right out and said it. But hey, it's making money for our television network. This was, you know, I mean, it, it, Trump has been lying about this I, two days after the, the, the election in November of last year. Or of 2020, year, year, year before last. It's 2022 now. <laughs> Uh, two days after the election, they still hadn't officially called the race because it was, uh, or they were just kind of on the edge of it. And, and Trump was lying. He, was, he made a live speech that all the networks carried where he said, you know, we actually won the election and, and there, there was voter fraud all over the place. And, and the, the networks cut away from him in the middle of his speech because he was telling so many lies. I mean, that, <laughs> that's a pretty low bar, actually. But, you know, he, he also told those same lies in his January 6th speech. And now he's issued this press release. He's saying, you know, he's calling it the unselect committee of highly partisan political hacks. And the media, in my opinion, is doing a terrible job of covering this. Then he adds, and I'm quoting from Donald Trump here as much as I am loath to do so. He says, and remember, the insurrection took place on November 3rd. It was the completely unarmed protest of the rigged election that took place on January 6th. Now think about that for a minute. This is a naked attempt to completely rewrite history. He's trying to do this both in the short term both to say, you know, we, we need to rewrite history right now so that I'm, so that Donald Trump is saying so that he's no longer characterized as the bad guy, as the inciter of a riot, as, as the man who led a mob or in, inspired a mob to go try to assassinate the vice president and the speaker of the house and tear down a democracy. But he's also trying to alter history for posterity. He's trying to change the narrative. And it's working, by the way, at least with Republican voters. You've got a third of Republican voters saying that violence is fine with them. You've got more than half of Republican voters saying, yeah, Trump actually won the election that he lost. There was a, an NPR Ipsos poll, and it showed that both Democrats, independents, and Republicans, in all three cases, more than 50%, believe that the United States democracy, that our system of government itself, quote, is in crisis and at risk of failing. This didn't just come out of nowhere. This is the consequence of 40 years of Reaganism and neoliberalism gutting the American middle class and the Republican Party adopting back in 1968 Richard Nixon's Southern strategy of trying to racialize every election and pandering to white supremacists. And Donald Trump was just saying out loud what Ronald Reagan, what Richard Nixon, 
what George Herbert Walker Bush, well, he with his Willie Horton ads, he, he went a, bit, a little beyond, you know, just kind of saying it by dog whistle. But uh, typically, and George W. Bush, what, what these Republican politicians have historically done is promoted this kind of stuff by, by dog whistle, you know, by, by implication. Trump just came right out and said it. And so now fewer than half of the Republicans in the United States, this was also from that NPR Ipsos poll, more than half of Republicans are saying, no, the, the election was not decided correctly, that uh, they're not accepting the results. This is nuts. This is the Tom Hartman program. And if the media gives him another free ride and another billion dollars worth of publicity, we are in for a really tough time. Jack in Texarkana, Texas. Hey, Jack, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Happy New Year. Back at you, Jack. Hey, I just want to say you have the best show in all media. I know you studied libertarianism when you were younger. Yeah, when I was 27 for about a year there, mm -hmm. I thought I was a libertarian. I thought I'd figured it all out. I did. I did too. And I think a lot of a lot of your listeners did too. Yeah. And then when you realize, oh wait a minute, this whole thing just self collapses. Yep. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and you know, even after the Civil War, you think, now how would that coalition of the uh, Confederate states have gotten along since they're all just a bunch of self serving, you know, libertarian anarchists? Yeah. Well, they were united in wanting to have a fascist police state. I mean, that's what they had created by the by the middle eight by the mid eighteen forties. Democracy was completely dead in the South. People who who uh, spoke out in opposition to slavery were literally murdered. They would be run out of the states if they weren't murdered. It was a full blown fascist. The South was a full blown fascist police state. And yeah, but you know, go ahead. you think about libertarians in the Republican Party now. I mean, what's, how, how do they finish that story? They're just trying to tear down government. Yeah. But then after that, what do they do? It's all just self-defeating. Well, what replaces government is the power of money, is the, the very wealthy. Libertarianism, I mean, th this is the part they don't say out loud, but libertarianism is ruled by the rich. It's ruled by the, the corporate forces. And you yeah, know, but, that is not, yeah. a, not a healthy thing. Did you come to that same conclusion when, when, when you got to the end? You're like... Now, wait a minute, where do they go from here? Back, well, in my 20s, you know, what blew up my love affair with libertarianism was I, I just couldn't, it was essentially that. I couldn't figure out where do you go from here. Ultimately, you know, when you seriously think about it, it didn't make sense. Jack, I want to try and get one more call in here before the end of the show. Thanks a lot for the call. Beth in Novi, Michigan. Hey, Beth, we have a little less than a minute. You got a quick one? Hi. Uh, happy New Year. Yeah, Thank you. I'm feeling that me as a voter is being ignored by CNN, uh, MSNBC, because they don't come and talk to me, a moderate person. They go to the MAGA cult. And uh, I would like them to come to a diner in Novi, Michigan, with regular people that don't believe in conspiracy theories. Okay. Or just Beth, I, I've got to end it there, but uh, good, good on you. I agree. I agree. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, get out there, get active, tag your in. We don't have a democracy if we don't participate in it, and we all have to do that. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you, and stay safe. These are, these are tough times, but this too shall pass. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.